Welcome to the Heights Sermon Series Podcast, where each week you'll hear a new message that'll help you with your life shaped by the way. Christmas at Luke's. Huh, wonder what I've gotten started here. Last Sunday uh, after church, Karen and I were at home and, and we ate lunch and I think we were sitting on the couch watching football, probably getting ready to take a nap and, and Karen's you know, scrolling through on her phone, and she says, hey, why don't, we, uh, why don't we start getting the boxes down and decorating? And I'm like, no, it's November 7th. Why would we decorate? And she goes, well, everybody online is, and they said it's because of you. <laughs> now, I, no, I didn't do that. Don't, you know, I, all of a sudden, I had this vision of all over this county, men up in their attics cussing my name. So I, 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 I apologize. It's way too early to decorate, and I'm, I'm going to make it up to you. I'll be in the attic probably this afternoon doing the, the same. But I didn't do it last week. So, hey, how many of you have seen the movie? Um, uh, well, I'd have to remember what the movie was. Back to the Future. How many of you have seen? A lot. Wow, okay. You know, that movie is all 40 years old almost. Old movie, and a lot of us have seen it, so you know what I'm talking about when you remember when Doc warns us or, or warns Marty that you cannot mess with the this, this space-time continuum, right? You can't, do, you can't take a knowledge of the future and bring it into the present and try to use it, or you'll just create these wild alternate realities. It'll take you three movies to get it fixed. Um, I mean, you might think you're doing good. I'm going to get rich or I'm going to make the right decision this time or I'm going to help somebody. But it, you might be wanting to do good, but you'll just start a chain of potentially horrible events. So the safest thing to do with the future is absolutely nothing. But oh, the temptation, right? I mean, how do you not bet on a game you know the outcome of? How do, how do you not do that? Of course, the good news is that nothing I just said is real. That's all, that's all pretend. That's all in a movie. We don't have to worry about that temptation except, except God is real. And God does tell the future. And unlike Doc, God absolutely expects you and I to act on it. You and I to very much act on it in the present. Turn with me today to Luke chapter 1. We have, as already alluded to, begun a Christmas series here. Our goal in that is instead of coming to the Christmas passage and grabbing a couple of themes or a couple of ideas that we look at for two or three Sundays is to actually take time to walk through an entire Christmas story, what God gave us, what God revealed. We chose Christmas, so that's why we're doing it at Luke's house, or we, we chose Luke. So uh, we're working through that. Last week we covered the first four verses, and today we're going to take on just a few more. So uh, beginning in verse 5, Luke chapter 1 Verse 5, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all his commandments and statutes. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. 
Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Now, that's John the Baptist that we're talking about here. We know him a little better by his nickname there, but this is the, the, what is going to be the birth of John the Baptist. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. That's a reference to a Nazarite vow. And then verse 16 and 17 are really important. It's kind of what this whole story kind of rolls on. Verse 16 and 17 are a quote from Malachi. Malachi was the last prophet to speak, and he did that 400 years ago. So Zechariah would have known this quote. It is a prophecy about the one who's going to come before the Messiah. So verse 16, and he will turn away many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Now I know we all try to follow scripture, but I'm just going to say here, and I've said it before, don't ever describe your wife that way. That's just me. You do what you want. I just would not describe her that way. Verse 19, and the angel answered him and said, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Very important line, because you did not believe. You did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that they had, he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Now, as we come to the Christmas story, of course, we we know we're going to read about a miraculous birth, but that's not usually the one we're thinking about, is it? I guess you would say this is the opening act. This is a warm-up miracle. You know, you gotta, you got to get loose before you do a big miracle. And, and so we're getting a warm-up here. Now, remember, let's go back to last week. I want to pick up one key idea that I want to carry all, all the way through this, and that's to remember why Luke is writing to us. Why is Luke telling me about this? Is it because we need stories to read at Christmas time? Is it because religious people, you know, we need some holy writings, we need some religious stories that we kind of gather around and build traditions around? No, no, that is not why he's writing. 
Luke is writing to embolden and to empower and to enable faith. Remember, he was a missionary. He's traveling around. He knows a lot of believers out there from one region to another, from one church to another. And he knows a lot of believers are being persecuted. He knows they're paying a... They believe in Jesus and they're paying for it. They're they're paying for it with their lives. They're they're paying for it with their freedom. They're they're, they're just being persecuted. And so what he says is, I'm going to give you a a well-documented, I'm going to give you a researched account of the life of Christ so that you know not only is this baby the king of all kings, the very son of God, not only is he worthy of your faith, but he's worthy of any price that that faith brings about. And you see there at the end of verse 4, he says, I'm writing these things to you so that you'll be certain. I want you to be certain of what you've been taught. I want you to be certain in your faith. When? When you're paying a price for it. And so notice right away, remember, this is Luke being a historian. He places us in a historical context. He says, in the days of Herod. And I'm guessing a lot of us don't don't know Herod real well, not real familiar with that name other than we've seen it in the Bible before. But if I were to ask the question, hey, who do you think are the worst murderous leaders in human history? I'm I'm guessing most of us aren't calling out Herod. We're going to go with a Hitler right away, maybe Stalin. Maybe we'll go back a little bit in history and Attila the Hun. I mean, we got a handful of names, but I'm guessing most of us aren't calling out Herod Although that's exactly the kind of company he kept. That's the kind of person that he was. It was said of Herod that it's safer to be his pig than to be his son. Because he killed his sons. He was insanely jealous of his position as king of the Jews. And anything he felt like might be a threat or a question mark about his position as king of the Jews, he would he'd just eliminate it, kill it like his own children. I mean, this is not a guy that's going to rejoice at the angel's announcement that, that a newborn king is being born. He's not ever going to sing that hymn. This is a guy that's just going to say, well, I don't know which one it is, so let's just kill all the kids two years and under. That, that's the kind of, that's the person we're talking about here. So, but what I want you to see in this, in these opening lines, is look at what Luke is doing. He's placing us under a specific government. He's placing us, pointing us to a specific family line. Folks, this is, this is not the words. These are, this is not what you do when you're writing a fable, when you're writing a myth. Or better yet, this is not what you do when you're making a story up. You know, I know none of us have lied, but maybe you've watched people lie. And you know that when people are lying, you don't throw out a lot of specifics. You keep it kind of vague and cloudy. I don't want to give you anything that you can grab on, anything that you can question, anything that you can go and follow up. You kind of shy away from specific details like that. What's Luke doing? He's pointing us right to the detail. This is just the beginning. I'm not not saying these few details alone prove anything other than he's telling the truth. And that's what you do when you're telling the truth. You make it easy for people to understand where we are, why we're there, what's going on, and what's happening. So he brings us into 
to our, our, our characters in the opening that are going to be kind of big, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And right away, he describes them as righteous. Now, he's not describing them as righteous because Zechariah is a priest. That's his, that's his position, and we know all priests and pastors are righteous, right? Don't we all know that? Okay, I was hoping for a little bit better response. But anyway, that's not why Zechariah is being called righteous. He's being called righteous, well, because he is. God, God looks on Zechariah and Elizabeth's life, and they are devout, and they are obedient, and they love God, and they serve God. And you know what I find kind of encouraging here is that God knows it. That may not be a huge point. That may not be anything. Well, I mean, we may hear that and think, well, of course God knows it. But isn't it kind of good to know that God knows when he's being loved and served? Did, did you love God this past week? Did you try to serve God somewhere this past week? You know what? God knows. God knows that. And so God knows this about Zechariah and Elizabeth. And that's important, especially in following the next description. They're childless. They're childless. More than one of us in here knows what infertility means. Knows the sorrow of that, the grief of that, the difficulty of that. So you know what a Zachariah, you know what an Elizabeth feels, and yet not quite. Because to that, you would have to add what they went through in this culture. Because in this culture, a religious culture, when you were without a child, that, that kind of said, you have God's curse on you. You're, you're in a bad place with God. You don't have his favor. You don't have his blessing. And your inability to have a child is just proof of that. Now, you know what? Nowhere in Scripture does it say that. But, boy, it, it comes across like Scripture. It comes across like it's from God. You know, folks, religious communities, we can do that, can't we? It might be a, an individual church. It might be a, a whole denomination. But we can have ideas and traditions that, that kind of rise up among us and they really take on the level as if God had said it himself. And boy, we've got to be careful because we can miscommunicate to each other. We can miscommunicate to a world and we can really leave sometimes people hopeless and broken and we can leave God looking kind of mean and angry and God never even said any of that. God never said that person doesn't have my, my blessing and favor. And of course, because of this story right here, we know quite the opposite. They are without child, but it's not because God doesn't love them. God acknowledges how righteous they are. Make sure, folks, that if you feel shame, and you know what? There are reasons still today in our culture we don't believe this, there are reasons to feel shame. There are reasons to feel shame. There are reasons to feel distant from God. It's why we need this babe in Bethlehem. But there are reasons for that. I would just say make sure it's God and his word that have said that and not a tradition and a culture that has said that. Amen? So Zechariah, you, you see here uh, in, in, in verse 5, as he's, you see the word division being used. So Zechariah is a priest. He is one of 20,000 priests. Not in history, 
at this time. At this time, there's 20,000 priests. So there's a bunch of people standing around with nothing to do, right? I mean, there's not possibly a job for 20,000 people to do. No, there's not. So what they did is they took these 20,000 priests and they broke them up into, and you see the word there, divisions. There was 24 divisions that the 20,000 priests were broken up into. But it didn't stop there. A division was then subdivided up into households. And there would be four to nine households in a division. And there was about 150 households, 150 priests in a household. And a household would serve for a week. Now, you still got way too many. You still got 150 priests on assignment for this week's duty. Well, they broke it up. There was a lot of things to do, anywhere from caring to the temple for caring for people, and there was all the sacrifices. So they they divide all these jobs up. But the really special job was going into the holy place. And they they would draw, you see it here, they would draw lots. And when your lot was chosen, then you would get to go into the holy place, and they would choose two a day. You say, two? I thought it was only one. Well, let's be clear about the temple. The most holy place, okay? In the most holy, that's at the far back, or I guess we'd go this way. That's back there. We'd say it's back there in the baptismal for just illustration. It's back there behind that wall. And only the high priest goes there, and he only goes once a year. That's what a lot of us maybe are are, are used to thinking about. There was a veil in front of it. You couldn't see in it. Nobody went in there except the high priest. That's the most holy place. But on this side of the holy place, let's say the platform here, this is the holy place. I know we got a lot of places running here. Are you keeping up with me? Most holy place, holy place. And the holy place, two priests a day, could go into that. Most Israel's still not coming up here. They're still not coming into this place, but two priests a day would. And they would go in. There was a lampstand that was continually burning. So once in the morning, once in the evening, they'd trim the wick on the lampstand. They would burn incense and probably just, you know, make sure poke in and make sure everything's okay, <laughs> nothing's happened, and, and that would be it. When you get drawn to do that, you're set aside because we want to give everybody a turn, right? Well, do the numbers. When your name is drawn to go in and do this, and you were a priest from the age 20 to 50, when you get drawn to do this, you are likely to never come in here again. You're, you're going to do this one time in your whole life. Now, folks, I say all that. Think about Zechariah. He, he's going to work today, and he knows, man, this is going to be the best day of work I've ever had. This, this is, I've, I've been waiting for this my, my, my whole career. I've been waiting for this my whole ministry. Man, today I'm going into the hole. This is going to be the best day of work ever. And he doesn't have a clue. <laughs> he, he thinks it's going to be big and yet has no idea what is about to happen to him. So he, he comes into the the holy place. And boy, folks, I'm just going to, you know, from a lot of us, you're familiar with this story. You know pretty much now, but till we get to Christmas Day, it's just angels and miracles everywhere, right? It's just going to be a whole lot of supernatural encounter. You know, I've said this be- before. I think I've even said it with the Christmas stories before. I think sometimes we approach this book thinking it's just, it's just all about supernatural encounters. It's miracles and angels everywhere. And have you ever read this? Have you ever been reading one of these stories and thought to yourself, gosh, if this, 
If this would happen today, it'd be a whole lot easier to believe, wouldn't it? Hey, God, why don't you do this kind of stuff now? You ever thought that? Of course you have. And, and yet, folks, that is not actually the picture that God presents in the Bible. Now, I want to be clear. Do I believe in miracles? Yes, I believe in them here, and I believe in them today. Do I believe in angels? Of course. There's millions of them in here, and there's millions of them still today. But the idea that our faith is encouraged, emboldened, and made possible by supernatural events and encounters, boy, if I could just see, I could believe, that's not what the Bible says. This book covers 1,500 years of human history. About 120 of those years, less than 10% of those years are filled with miracles, Now, what do I mean by that? I don't mean a miracle was happening every day for those 120 years. When I say 120 years, 40 of those years would be Moses. Moses wasn't doing miracles every day, but boy, he did some big ones, right? (laughs) He did some very memorable ones. I mean, he he goes into Egypt and you've got the, the, the 10 plagues. And then you come out of Egypt and I'd have bought a ticket for this, the parting of the Red Sea. I'd, I'd want to see it. I'd want to see that happen. And, and then you get out into the wilderness and you got a handful more. I didn't count it up. I'm sure there's a number. In that whole time, you're probably talking about 20, 25 miracles. But you've got about 40 years of people that are eyewitnesses to those miracles, that are giving firsthand account of those miracles. So when I say 40 years, I'm not saying everybody was seeing miracles every day. I'm saying Moses for about a 40-year period there, was doing some of that. But the reality is, folks, 90-plus percent of what we call Bible people, whatever they are, 90-plus percent of Bible people never saw a miracle. They never saw an angel. And that's important for you and I. We don't have a disadvantage to believing that they had. I've always said I think we have much more because we have the entirety of Scripture. They didn't have that. But the Bible tells us we walk by faith, not by sight. What is sight? Seeing an angel, seeing a miracle. Boy, Lord, I'm I'm due due for a miracle, Lord. If I'm going to keep going in this thing, I need to see something. I mean, that's a very natural way to think. And the Bible says, no, that's not what following Christ is. We walk by faith and not by sight. And so if you're trying to understand Zechariah's response here as he gets in there and he sees this angel, he didn't go in there and think, well, I'm in the holy place. It's going to be a big day at work. I'm probably going to see a miracle or two. Probably a couple of angels rolling around in there. No, there, he didn't expect to see any angels rolling around in there. He walks in there and he's, well, like most people are, he's scared to death. You know, we don't know exactly what angels look like. Sometimes in the, in the Bible, they're described as taking on the form of a human. The people engaging with them don't even know that they're engaging with an angel. It just looks, looks like another person. Sometimes angels will take on kind of a symbolic form. We see that a good bit in Revelation. And then a lot of times, like we're going to see today, next week, up in the sky singing praises to God, angels take on a form that's probably a lot like, you know, what we think of as an angel. Well, what does that look like? Well, beautiful would be a word. Powerful would be a word. I think a word coming out of the presence of God, holy. And it's so much holy, it's so much power, it's so much beauty that when people engage with them, the opening thought is, I don't think it's safe to be here. 
This is scary, not like, not like horror movie scary, just like, oh, this is a lot bigger than me. I'm not sure I belong right here right now. And so that's why the opening line of an angel, Old and New Testament, is always the same. Don't be afraid. Don't, don't be afraid. He says, hey, man, don't be afraid. I'm here for good, good news. And he starts talking about what we know as John the Baptist and this Nazarite vow. And then he quotes these verses. These verses are a promise of God spoken 400 years ago. That's a long time to wait for a promise, isn't it? I mean, most of us, let's be honest, we get promised something about 40 minutes later, we're wondering, well. So, so 400 years is uh, long enough to doubt. That, that's long enough to, to wonder. So 400 years ago, and, and as a matter of fact, even as Gabriel gives uh, Zechariah this promise, it's still a future event. It hadn't been fulfilled yet. He's telling them it's going to be fulfilled. And what he's telling them about is the forerunner, the one who's going to come before the Messiah. And folks, Israel at this time was looking for their Messiah. The the, the oppression of Rome made that more wanted than probably ever before. They're looking for the Messiah. And for the Jewish mind, looking for the Messiah meant looking for the promises, looking for the promise, prophecies that would point me to, that would say, hey, here's the Messiah. He's coming. And one of those prophecies was the forerunner. The one who would come in the spirit of Elijah. And as Zechariah or as Gabriel begins to quote that promise, I, there is, I mean, can I say this for sure? Yes, I can. There is a 100% chance Zechariah knows these verses. He knows those verses are about the forerunner. He knows that Gabriel is saying, you're going to have a son, and that son is going to be this forerunner. That means the Messiah is on the way. I mean, this is big news that is just getting bigger and bigger, and we ought to be so excited. And what does Zechariah do? He said, have you, have you seen me? Have you seen my wife? Well advanced in years. Again, I don't know. I just wouldn't describe my wife that way. You know, he's not actually referring to his wife like being older than dirt or something. There actually is a meaning behind that. And what she's saying is, what he's saying is, my wife's past menopause. You know, we, I don't get it. And I, you know, you ever have somebody do something you think, you know, I wish you'd done that a while ago. You know, it almost makes you angry. I, I wonder, is he right now thinking seriously? Right now you're going to talk. I mean, we couldn't have a child when we were supposed to have a child. And now that's just, that's over. That's not going to happen. And, and, and now you say, and so he asked what really feels like a, a normal response, right? How? How is that going to happen at, at this point? And then, and again, I want to try to, normally when I'm looking at Bible characters, I understand where they are and why they're doing it, and I feel their weakness because I see it myself. I'm sorry, Zachariah's on his own here. I don't get it. I know he's being told something kind of big and unexpected, but seriously, Zach, you ask for a sign? I mean, if I'm standing there, I'm, I think the big angel might be a sign, You know, do you realize what he just asked of Gabriel? 
And I love, love, love this response. It's my favorite angel response in the whole Bible. He asked this question, how? And Gabriel, who I think is as stunned as I am, is going, well, I'm Gabriel. I came from the presence of God. Now, right now, I'm thinking, engage the motor, Zach. Because right here, I would have said, you know what? My bad, my bad. I withdraw the request. My bad, I, 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 I get it. But, but, but before the motor gets engaged, before he gets that out, Gabriel says, here's your sign. You're not going to be able to speak. Now, you know, all in all, punishments I see in the Bible, consequences in the Bible, that's not the worst one. But what's the first thing you would want to do when you get good news? Man, you want to tell somebody. And the bigger the news, it gets to be where you don't even matter who it is you're telling. Anybody ever told a stranger good news? Stand in line. I mean, if the news is big enough, you'll talk to anybody who stands still for three seconds. You'll tell her, this is, I'm going to have a child. I'm going to have a son. It, hey, the Messiah's on the way. I mean, this is just nothing but big news everywhere. And he's not going to be able to say a word. Why? Because you did not believe. See, God painted a future out there in those prophecies. God gives a future in the promises And by that future, we're to live a present reality. You should have known. You should have responded rightly. Listen, folks, the Bible, God acknowledges that faith is hard. It acknowledges it's hard sometimes to hold on to God. It's hard to believe. It's hard to respond, right? The Bible absolutely acknowledges that. But don't confuse God acknowledging that and recognizing that for thinking that it's no big deal if we respond wrong. God absolutely, 100% of the time, expects you to believe And believe is not a warm feeling that I have in my tummy. Believing is acting. Believing is obeying. God is never going to say, you know, that was a big one. I should have, I know that's hard. Listen, I'm not going to hold that against you. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. Clearly. Zechariah and Elizabeth are two people he knows love him and serve him. It's two people he's put a, a, a seal of approval on. And in one moment of not acting right, one moment of not believing, there's a consequence to pay for that. Hey, is there something going on in your life right now where you... You know God's speaking. You know he's guiding. You know he's told you. And you're saying, well, that's, boy, that's hard. Boy, that's what's Luke writing about. Boy, that's going to cost. God expects you to believe. God expects you to believe. So Zach comes out. They've been waiting for him. They know, hey, what's going on in there? seems like it's been a while. It only takes so long to fix a candle and burn some incense. He should have been out by now. And he comes out and he can't speak. And, he, you know, he's all this. You know, and they, hey man, something's happened in there. 
He's, he's seen an angel or something, something, something big has just happened. And then, and then I love this part in my own mind and imagination. They go home. And I, folks, I don't mean to be crass or inappropriate here, but I'm just trying to imagine this moment where Zachariah gets home. Can't talk, but he's trying to get Elizabeth to understand. We got to make a baby. I don't know why. All I can hear Elizabeth saying, you old buzzard. <laughs> you know, folks, in, in two chapters of the Bible that are just filled with the supernatural. Angels and miracles. I mean, it's going to be there next week. We're going to come back. Gabriel's going to show up with Mary. I mean, it's just angels and miracles, angels and miracles. But in the midst of all that, don't miss what else is there. A whole lot of people suffering under a horrible government. There's fear. There's frustration. There's oppressive taxation. You've got a couple over here that just are, are living with infertility. The struggle, the, the, the sorrow, the why not God. Hey, whatever a culture's doing to you, boy, we, nobody hardly does worse to us than we do to ourselves. You got a guy heading off to his best day of work ever. You got a promise. Oh, I believe in the promises of God. But it's 400 years old. It's, it's been a long time. I mean, honestly, it's just hard to live by a promise every day when it's 400 years old. You know what I see in Luke 1 and 2, among all the angels and miracles? I see a lot of regular people living a very regular and normal life. And folks, in the midst of regular people living regular lives... God fulfills promises. And do you notice how he fulfilled that promise first? He spoke his word. The angel spoke right out of the Old Testament. And just like Zechariah was supposed to believe, so are you. And so am I. We're supposed to believe those promises. Remember, belief isn't just something I cuddle up with and have warm traditions with at Christmas time. Belief moves to action. Every day, action. We say, what kind of promises are we supposed to be moving on? How about this one? Jesus is coming back. Folks, that, that promise right there that Jesus is coming back, I would guess top three, maybe top five themes of the entire New Testament. That you and I, every day of our lives, are to be living in light of that. What do you mean living? It means I'm deciding not to do things. It means I'm deciding to do things. That promise shapes my values. It shapes how I look at people, how I look at the world. It shapes what makes my heart beat. That's a promise that is to show up every day. So why did you and I not think about Jesus coming back even one time in the last seven days? Have we thought about it much since we were in Revelation a year and a half ago? So if I'm going to respond right when all of a sudden the promise of 2,000 years ago is brought right up into my face, well, then I've got to be living that promise every day. I've got to be letting that promise shape my life every day. How, How about this promise? Justice will be done. That's a promise. Nobody... 
Nobody on an individual level, nobody on a, on a national level, nobody is getting away with anything, which is why you need the babe in Bethlehem. Nobody's getting away with anything. God has promised justice will be done. Are you living in light of that? What does it mean to live in light of that? Well, what does it mean to live in light of a lack of justice? When an injustice has been done to you at work or in your family or, or you're just grieved by injustices that take place on a, on a broader scale, what does it do? It makes us anxious. It makes us mad. You see, I'm looking at something. I'm living without the promise. And so it shapes my attitude. It shapes my values. It shapes my mood. What if I was living in light of the promise? Justice will be done. That doesn't mean all of a sudden I've got a big smiley face. That everything's fine and okay, but I can rest. I can be at peace. I can focus on the next step because God's got that. How, how, how about this one? I'm, I'm going to inherit eternal riches. I know right, right now somebody's saying, well, I'm very presently poor. Yeah, and I, I can't change that. But you're one day, one day you're going to have it all. Now, that, now, now, living in light of this promise does not mean go out and run up the credit card today. That's, that's not what living in light of this promise means. But hey, man, it's just always there. there. There's a day coming. Or how about this one? How about this future that God paints? Condemnation's not in your future. You know, right now, this room is filled with people online. So many watching, innumerable that live in daily fear that they're going to find out. Whoever they is, you know who they is. They're going to find out who you really are. They're going to find out what you're really like. They're going to find out what you, what you did. And that, that future where you reject God's promise, that future shapes how you live today. It shapes how you relate with other people. It fills you with, with anxiety. It fills you with guilt. It fills you with, with shame. What if I lived in light of that? Hey, that, that doesn't mean people get better. But I know that ultimately God has said, condemnation is not the future I have for you, which is why we need the babe in Bethlehem. It's Jesus that buys that. It's Jesus that guarantees that condemnation. It's, There will therefore now be no condemnation for those who are in Christ. What a promise. What a future. That I can live today. That I can enjoy today. Listen, folks, I can go on and on. I'll stop there at four. I can go on and on talking about promises and and how that should impact. Listen, I could talk right on through dinner time so that nobody has a chance to decorate for Christmas today. And I won't. But our lives are to be built on these promises. That's, that's exactly what was happening. Gabriel was saying, your life, you know that promise. Your life should have been built on that promise. And you should have known exactly how to respond right here. And what's Zechariah doing? He's standing there asking stupid questions to Gabriel, the mighty angel. Man, I don't want to do that. And we live the promise right now. Living the promises means knowing them. 
And then it means I pray and I think and I work on letting those promises shape my attitude, my mood, how I look at others. Hey, if I don't have to fear, think about this, taking these promises. If I don't have to fear being caught, if I don't have to fear what they're going to find, you know what's happened? I've, I've been released. I've been released. And since I know I've been released, I know there's a whole lot of other people running around in that fear. What if I were to release them? That you don't have to fear what I'm going to find out. Isn't that what forgiveness is? So you see, you take a command like forgive. What's it based on? The promise. These promises are to be shaping every day, every relationship, how you look, how you respond, everything you do. And here's the big thing, folks. And God expects it. This isn't a, hey, here's how we deal with life. God's given us promises. Go try it out. No, no, no. What Gabriel's saying is, and God expects it. He expects you to do this. Well, well, how can he do that? Well, it's real simple. God's batting a thousand. When you don't ever miss, then you can expect people to trust. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, you spoke into Zechariah and Elizabeth's life. You had the angel say, God has heard your promises. God's heard your prayers. I wonder how long ago it had been that Zechariah and Elizabeth stopped praying about that. Oh, Lord, how easy it is for us to quit. Because you haven't, you haven't proved yourself. You haven't shown me a sign. You move and work in the most right and perfect ways. And your timing, which we can't always tell or always see, but your timing is always at the exact precise moment that it needs to be, even if it was 400 years later or 2,000 years later. God, I pray we're a people that believe. I pray we, I pray every single day this week we think, what am, I, what am I doing that's believing? Where do I need to believe? Where does that belief need to show up? How does it need to guide? And boy, Lord, I pray that drives us to your word so that daily we have encouragement, inspiration, and motivation, and an instruction on where we need to believe. Oh, Lord, when you show up, I don't want to say prove it. And, Lord, if Zachariah and Elizabeth, if they're prone to saying prove it, I can only imagine what that says about me. May we believe. Lord, I pray our gathering, our friendships, Help us believe. I pray we're building friendships that help us believe, that help us hang on. Because you expect it and you're worthy of it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.